This is Health Yeah, your weekly update on what's going on in the health, wellness, and medical world with Monica Robbins. Hey everyone, I'm Monica Robbins, and thank you so much for checking out Health Yeah, your prescription for clear, concise medical health and wellness information. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you can get a weekly dose of some timely health topics. Today, we're talking to author Dr. Brandi Scalace. She writes nonfiction on death and dying, the history of science, steampunk, and the book we're going to be talking about today, The Cold War Race to Transplant a Human Head, which is about renowned neuroscientist and surgeon Dr. Robert White, who worked here in Cleveland at Metro Health. Her books have been reviewed in Science Magazine, The New York Times, Boston Globe, The New Yorker, Wall Street Journal, and she's also the 2018 winner of the Arthur P. Sloan Science Foundation Award and has appeared on Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum and NPR's Here and Now. We'll ask her about that too. She's also the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal's Medical Humanities Journal. And again, she just released this book, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, A Monkey's Head, The Pope's Neuroscientist, and the Quest to Transplant the Soul. Dr. Scalace, thank you so much for being with us today. I have to ask you, what got you interested in uh, in writing about, well, first of all, Dr. Robert White, renowned. I had the privilege of knowing him um, and interviewing him multiple times. He, he passed away in 2010. But how did you get this in your head to write a book about him? Well, th- this is a Cleveland story all the way around. I, uh, I was pursued in some ways by this story. I, I had just, I had written a book on death and dying several years ago. And during that time I was investigating things like brain death. I got to know a neurosurgeon in town, Michael DiGiorgio. And one day he called me out of the blue and asked me to come down to his office. He had something interesting to show me. So I agreed. I go down to university hospitals. I pop into his office. And he pulls out a shoebox, which I was not expecting. He sort of pushes it towards me. And when I open it, inside is an old notebook. I'm really old, 1950s. It's, it's clearly very well worn, well used. I'm flipping through it. It's got little rusty flecks in it, which turns out to be mouse blood. So I'm looking at this blood soaked notebook. And I said, what is this, Michael? And he said, oh, that's the lab notebook from, college, from, from uh, medical school of Dr. Robert White, the man who performed the first successful primate head transplant in 1970. And there's so many words in that sentence that my brain was just going, I'm sorry. I, I felt like in that scene in Young Frankenstein where he finds the book that says how I did it. So I, I'm just sitting there looking at this notebook and he asks me, do you think you would want to write about this story? And at that point, I'm already coming up with a table of contents. So obviously, yes, Um, I was completely hooked from the start. So this was his his medical journal or was it like a diary? It was was actually a, a lab notebook. It was an old MIT lab notebook that used to get with the graph paper inside. And he had used it while a medical student, while he was uh, actually up training in Minnesota at uh, the Mayo Clinic for the various experiments he was doing as a student. So he was working with mice at the time, trying to isolate mouse brains. Um, And what I mean by isolate, this is very complicated. We isolate organs to study them up close and to see how they work, but you want the organ to still be a living piece of tissue. So if you think about that, to isolate a brain means trying to keep the brain alive 
after you've taken it out of the the head and that's a that's peculiar but that ends up being one of the first things that he achieves once he gets down to metro so it was a fascinating absolutely fascinating thing to discover that anyone was doing this in the first place and that they were doing it so long ago so was that was the isolating mouse brains the thing that just grabbed you out of that out of that book or, or was there something else in that notebook that just made you go wait what it wasn't so much. So the notebook, mouse blood, mouse brains, that was enough for me. But um, as I started to research his life, first of all, there were all these kind of rumors. And I thought, well, none of these can't be true, right? They said, oh, he was friends with the Pope. And I'm thinking, sure he would. No, he was friends with two Popes. Like everything I found out about him was bigger than I thought it was going to be. So it was almost like he was so much bigger than the myth. He was literally larger than the myths about him. So um, I learned all kinds of details. He worked with he had a sort of a, a rivalry with a surgeon in Moscow and uh, during the Cold War. So there was this this competition between him and surgeons uh, behind the Iron Curtain. And there was almost a sort of like the space race, except it was the inner space race. And Dr. White really considered the brain the final frontier rather than outer space. And he can, he actually called himself one time a sort of brain uh, brain astronaut. <laughs> What's so fabulous about this book is that you, you chronicle his life and it's not just about the brains, but also there's so much medical history in this. How long did it take you to do this research? And about that research, what was it that surprised you the most? Well, it, it took me about two years to compile everything that I needed to do. And it actually required quite a lot of travel. I went to Minnesota um, because he was originally from there. His family was originally from there and he moved to Cleveland. Uh, I went to Moscow and I found the original lab of Vladimir Demikov, which was his rival. I, I saw all kinds of things there we can talk about more. Um, but I think what was so fascinating to me is that Dr. White's life and this book really chronicles almost um, 60 years of medical research. And it starts really uh, with the earliest transplant science. He was there for the first, he was at the Peter Bent Brigham in Boston for the first successful kidney transplant by Joseph Murray, who won a Nobel prize for that. And he, he was in this, this history of transplant surgery and all that it can mean from its very earliest inception. And all of the changes that took place, we're talking uh, the civil rights movement, animal rights movement, um, changes in our relationships to world powers, the fall of the Soviet Union, all of this takes place in this book. And Dr. White's life really intersects all of those things. He was, he was in it, you know. When you, uh, let's get back to uh, Moscow for a second, because <laughs> I will tell you that was Anyone who has any interest in any history should seriously pick up this book and read it because it is just fascinating. But I want to warn people who are like <laughs> me, um, who are huge animal lovers, because yes, this is about animal research. Mm -hmm. However, um, when we were when you were talking about in the book the the twenty four Cerberus dogs that um, Demikoff made, it just you know. It made me insane as I'm as I'm walking my dog listening to the book, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, this was the start of something of something huge. And we're still working to achieve, you know, what he had done. But let's talk yeah. about what was in that. I have to know what was in that lab that you saw. And if can you explain what the mm -hmm. the the two. I will. 
Yeah. Was. So um, in 1958, while Robert White was still, you know, matriculating basically in medical school, a video was released, some film footage out of Moscow, out of the Soviet Union, from out from behind the Iron Curtain. And it was black and white and it's grainy and fuzzy. And in this video, a physiologist named Vladimir Demikov leads out onto the stage a dog, but this is a composite creature. It's a surgically created two-headed dog. He has attached one dog's head onto another dog's body, a larger dog's body. So there's a small dog's head attached to this larger sort of mastiff dog. And both heads uh, ostensibly work. They, they can pant, they can lick you, they can move their ears and their eyes, they can sniff things, they, they, they're functional. Um, he even has them drink milk in this video and it's released and everyone around the world kind of does this what are they doing over there? You know, what have they become capable of? Is this true? Is it a hoax? What's going on? And Dr. White becomes really interested, but not just Dr. White. Uh, Christian Barnard in South Africa, who performs the first heart transplant later on, is also really interested. So as macabre as this seems, and they, they did name the dog Cerberus after the three-headed uh, hound of Hades, right? It only had two heads though, so Cerberus minus one. And, uh, but he did fascinate people. So it seems macabre and it, and it is, but it's also everyone wondered like, how do you make that happen? Is that possible? What does that mean? So, um, so partly Dr. White becomes interested. He ends up going to Moscow to try and meet Vladimir Demikov. And so I wanted to trace his steps myself. So um, I had heard some weirdly conflicting information. I had heard that Demikov's lab was a church, a stable, and a hospital. And I thought, well, it can't be all three things, but it can. So it turns out when I get there, I actually, it took me forever to find it. And I finally did. What had happened was before the revolution, before the Bolsheviks, um, a hospital, great big public hospital had been built in Moscow and they had built a small church on the grounds of the hospital as part of it, uh, a Russian Orthodox church. Now, when Napoleon and his folks decide to try and steamroll into Russia and take it over, he ends up, he has a favorite horse and he ends up housing his horse in the church building. So it became a stable. <laughs> then it was decommissioned as a church later on after the Bolshevik revolution and it became used as a lab. And this is actually where Vladimir Demikov created these bizarre experiments. And so I, I visited, it is now a church again. I did visit the church I also found a museum there that showed the tools and devices that Demikov used. And it turns out he made these devices himself. He was operating on a shoestring. This was not like in the United States. It wasn't this sterile, uh, wealthy, you know, a lot of people suspected that it would be. They thought they'd go there and find the state of the art. But when White arrives, he realizes that Demikov is quite poor. He's uh, fallen on the wrong side of the authorities a little bit, and he's been in a bit of trouble. And actually um, the authorities in Moscow weren't so keen on the two-headed dog idea. They were, they were a little bit alarmed and sort of horrified by this. But what it means is that Demikov created these simply by being really, really fast. So he, he literally just was a fast surgeon, fastest knife in Moscow, I guess. And that's how he was creating these two-headed dogs to prove that something as um, amazing as the human brain could basically be transplanted. And that that was really the, the bulk of his research. And so as twisted as it was, it actually pushed medical science forward 
And I, I think that's the, the part that all the animal lovers have to sadly get over is that mm -hmm. there is, there was a point to all of this from, mm -hmm. you know, reading your book and, and paying attention to the cooling techniques that mm -hmm. Dr. White was behind. Anybody who's ever had a stroke who was cooled down and survived it. Absolutely. Should thank him. Can you talk yes. about that? I, I don't think a lot of people realize he was nominated for a Nobel. He was, yes. In fact, he was nominated by Joseph Murray, the person who did the first kidney transplant successfully. The cooling technique is important because I just mentioned that Vladimir Demikhov was just working really fast. And the reason I say that is because the brain is a greedy organ. It has to have oxygen and blood and nutrients. And, and to be deprived of oxygen for even a short period of time results in brain damage in the in the death of in cellular death basically and so for instance my father had open heart surgery and he had to have his his body and brain had to be cooled down because that means you're at less risk of of having brain damage because it makes the brain less greedy there was no possibility of doing that in russia because that technique was basically invented by dr white so he begins using this technique uh all the way back when he was a student to try and um prevent paralysis of animals that had been injured, but he begins to realize that supercooling the brain, therapeutic hypothermia is what they call it, also means you can protect that brain from the trauma that might be happening to the body. And this begins to make him realize that if you cool the brain, you can also isolate it. So back to that idea of getting a brain alive and outside of its body. And I will say that White was not super, um, he didn't really understand what the two-headed dog experiments were for. He felt that that was a dead end and he didn't think that that was necessary. But he did do experiments on primates. And that was essentially the what he comes back from Moscow and he's, he's going to be working with these primates to isolate brains and to do his own primate head transplant. So I guess the big question a lot of people who aren't familiar with this story want to know is how did he end up in Cleveland? Oh, yes. Well, this is, I think this is points for Cleveland, basically. Um, he, when he finished working, when he finished his degree, he had both an MD, or he got a, his degree for surgery in medical school, but he also got a PhD in neuroscience. And he didn't just want to be a surgeon. He wanted to be a neuroscientist. He wanted to push the envelope on these things, discover new things. After the kidney transplant, he began to think, well, what if you needed all the organs? Would it be possible to move all the organs at one time over to where your brain lives? Because for white, being Catholic, um, well, I think for a lot of us, we think of ourself as residing in the brain. But specifically, as a, as a Catholic gentleman, white felt that the brain and soul were the same. And so he wanted to preserve life, preserve soul. And he wondered if there was a way that you could do that if you didn't just need a kidney, but you needed all of it, kidney, hearts, lungs, your body was failing. So this becomes kind of, you know, in the back of his mind, even as he's doing other things, he wants to do this research. But a lot of people offered him positions. They were like, well, you can be a scientist here, but not a surgeon. Or you can be a surgeon here, but not a scientist. But at Cleveland, at Metro, they looked at White and went, oh, yeah, we want this guy. You can do all the things. We will give you your own brain research lab. And that was the, the draw. And I think that makes sense because Cleveland is kind of a mavericky place in some way. We have a lot of medical mavericks here. A lot of breakthroughs happen right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and so uh, in, the, in the health field. So, um, so White was in the right place at the right time for the things that he wanted to do. I had the uh, privilege of being in that lab with him. I did a story on, on you know, his, his 
head transplant years and years and years ago. And I think that uh, another story I did, which I found really fascinating that you brought up in the book was his hemisphere study. And I I interviewed a, a young man who survived a tree falling on his head and Dr. White was his surgeon. And I will never forget Dr. White sitting there telling me that he was literally holding this man's brain in his hands. And the catch, and the, the, the gentleman's name is Kevin Reed. He is still alive today. He was a drummer and he was ambidextrous. And Dr. White said in his hit parade of surgeries that he had performed, Kevin's story was in his top 10. And the reason for that was half of Kevin's brain was destroyed. So Kevin is literally one of those people living with Mm -hmm. half of a brain and functioning because Dr. White thinks because he was ambidextrous, that's Mm -hmm. what allowed him to function. Kevin owns his own business. Mm -hmm. He's, he's doing phenomenal. And, and when I, when I was reading the part about the, the dual hemisphere, I was just taken back, you know, to, to, you know, I didn't realize it was that far back that he had been doing this. And then in the late nineties, he actually performed it on a human being. Right. Right. Well, because I think the brain is a complex organ. I think white's right to say it's the final frontier. It is a, it is a very strange thing. We still don't understand so much about the brain. And one of the things that I I just want to, you asked me what was one of the most surprising things in the research. And to me, it's not the head transplant. It's this idea that the brain could live outside of its body. And what, what that means, and I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll do a real quick description of it. Essentially, White had to make sure that the, the cooled brain was still being flushed with blood and fluids from another donor monkey, essentially. And then he slowly takes this brain out of its skull so that it is free floating. It's just a little pink bulb of brain. And he has it hooked up to EEG. So it's being flushed with blood. It's, it's getting all the nutrients. And over there on the EEG graph paper, it's clicking away. It is sending out brain signals. It's thinking, it's still in there. And and for White, this meant that the brain could outlive the body. And for me, what does that say about the self? Not just who we are, but where we are in this composite body. Because I don't think that I'm just a brain. Of course, I think my body is quite important to who I am as a person. Um, And I have all sorts of neurons in your gut and all kinds of other things. But this concept that a, a thinking organism could actually outlive its, its physical body was just uh, philosophically mind blowing, really, for me. But it also meant that for White, anyone with thinking power, anyone whose brain was still awake and alive, so not brain dead, not an isoelectric or flatline EEG, but anybody who had activity, their life was not just worth saving, it was worth as much as anyone else's. So in a funny way, um, long before ableism becomes a term, White was really interested in supporting those people who sometimes their lives were treated as though they weren't as important. So I talk about Craig Vitovitz. Craig Vitovitz was a tetraplegic man who had been in a diving accident. He, he also lived in and around Cleveland, Akron area, owned his own business, but he was, in, he was confined to a wheelchair and his organs had begun to fail, his kidneys particularly. This is a weirdly, uh, this story is a lot about kidneys as well as brains. And he wanted to get an organ transplant because he had a lot to live for. He had children, he wanted to see them grow up and get married, but he wasn't considered a good candidate because he was tetraplegic. And for, for Craig, he, he thought, 
someone else is deciding whether or not my life is worth saving. And I don't think that's right. And White uh, initially thought about performing a body transplant or basically taking Craig's head and putting a different a brain dead body on that head um, as a way of, of saving Craig's life. And Craig was thinking, they, they literally planned the surgery, it didn't happen. Um, and that's, that's mind blowing and weird too. You think that's very Frankenstein, but at the bottom of it is someone like Craig saying, I deserve to live, my life is worth something. So that idea that someone who is uh, paralyzed, that their life is just as meaningful as anyone else's was really, uh, really crucial and important to Dr. White. And I found that really interesting. You know, Cleveland is known, we've done the face transplant. We've done mm-hmm. so many different things here. But when it comes to a brain transplant, from, from your research, do you think it's really going to be possible? And are, and is science still pushing ahead to potentially make that happen? So probably the most peculiar thing about this story is that it's possible right now. We actually have the techniques. You know, I could, well, I couldn't <laughs> perform one, but a, a head transplant in the hands of a capable surgeon could happen. And that's been true for a while. White actually went as far as working on cadavers, just like Joseph Murray practiced the first kidney transplant on cadavers. White did a head transplant on cadavers in preparation for what he thought would be the first human head transplant. Or when he works with humans, he calls it a body transplant, <laughs> um, body transplant surgery. And it didn't happen, but White was emphatic that it absolutely could have. He thought it would be easier and more successful than the primate head transplant. And I should probably say he transplanted the head of one monkey onto the body of another monkey and it lived for nine days. It woke up, it ate, it drank, it couldn't move its lower body because of course severing the spinal cord makes you unable to to activate those those lower quadrants of your body, but it did live. that also got him in trouble with PETA. But the point is, yeah, we could do this today. The question is, should we? Is that a good idea? Is that a risk worth taking? Yeah, I think that's when you're finished with this book, there are a lot of philosophical and spiritual questions mm-hmm. you're left with as well. Let's talk a little bit about your your other adventures and other things that you do. Um, so <laughs> explain why you were on the Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum. <laughs> So uh, I used to work for a while, about five years, at the Dittrich Medical History Center and Museum here in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, it's a great museum. If you've never been to it, it's on the campus of Case Western Reserve University. And it's attached also to uh, a library, to the Allen Memorial Library, which is a big medical library. It's a fantastic place, really beautiful as well. And uh, I had worked there. We had a lot of interesting exhibits. Uh, We had the world's largest contraception collection. You might not know. Um, A lot of things on on, uh, bone saws. There were old x-ray tables, lots of interesting things. Well, I got contacted by the Travel Channel, which they were doing mysteries at the museum and they had a story and they wanted to talk about body snatching. Uh, grave robbery, essentially. And oddly enough, I've done a bit of that. Um, you can't write about death and dying cross-culturally and historically without coming across, uh, you know, <laughs> people paying to have bodies dug up so that they can practice on them. This is before we had body donation programs. So uh, so I ended up doing a show for them on, on the, the practice of people breaking into graveyards and stealing bodies Frankenstein-esque for the purpose of anatomy lessons. Um, and some of this actually did happen in Cleveland as well. And uh, this, 
at Woodlawn Cemetery, so what a medical student was caught back in the 19th century trying to uh, exhume. Uh, so this is a story that I decided to do, and I, I was on the show. It was really great. They came and filmed, and you know I get to say creepy things about medicine. And they came back again. They, they liked it so much. They, they called me for another show, and we did one on uh, heart catheterization. The, because the first gentleman who performed heart catheterization did it on himself, which mm -hmm. is not a great idea. Self-experimentation, it's a little creepy. Wasn't it sort of an accident as well? No, no, he did it on purpose. He actually fought off another surgeon who was trying to stop him. I mean, this is, the, the reenactment was um, ahistorical, but precious and interesting. So it's worth watching. Um, uh, <laughs> so yes, I, that's how I ended up on Mysteries of the Museum. <laughs> So why death and dying? Why did that, mm. you know, sort of become your forte? Well, some of that is my own history a little bit. So I grew up in Southern Ohio and it's abandoned coal country. And like so many areas in the Midwest, industry has pulled out and it's left, uh, it's left destruction in its wake. It's left pollution. It's left joblessness. It's left polluted water. Uh, our water is always orange down where I'm from. Um, I heard a statistic once that said something like one in three people get cancer where I'm from. So it's a very disturbing thing where you, the water to table has been messed up by mining and other strip mining and things. So growing up, I was surrounded by that environment, a slowly dying coal town and people who were getting ill. My, my own parents, my father uh, had several big heart attacks. My mother had cancer several times. And I remember as a child um, fearing I was going to lose them and that I would have to you know, look after my brother. I should also mention I lived in an underground house near a cemetery. So you know, I had a pet raccoon, it was, it was a thing. But um, I lived near that cemetery and I used to read medical books you know, sitting on the, on the top of <laughs> tombstones and, and thinking about how do you come to terms with these things? My, my parents had trouble accessing healthcare. They weren't particularly well off. It left us devastated after these illnesses. My dad had trouble getting insured because of pre-existing conditions. It makes you aware of mortality in ways that you might not normally be. Um, so I began to research that as I became, I was, I'm a historian and I love, you know, I particularly a historian of research and, or of history of medicine. And I began looking into how have we dealt with this before? Because Death and dying these days is screened a lot by the medical experience, right? So you don't, typically we don't wait up with the bodies. We don't wash the bodies ourselves that much. Most of us have not actually seen someone die. Uh, I have, I was performing CPR on someone who had a massive, uh, their heart had actually exploded in a diner and um, I performed CPR on them. We couldn't save him. So I have seen it, but most people have not. And when you think about that, this screening makes us really kind of unprepared to deal with grief and death. And then something like COVID happens and suddenly not only are we dealing with huge numbers of people who are dying, actually so astronomical that our brains can't even really wrap around it. We can't even come to grips with it. Um, and we're doing it alone and in isolation. So my first book was about death and dying before all of this happened, but I've recently been on uh, NPR. I was interviewed for the New York Times as well. Um, the Globe and Mail, I did a story called Death and Grief in the Time of Coronavirus. Because what is this doing to us as a culture that we have been so divided from what is actually quite a natural thing to happen in life? Death happens to everybody, but we've been so separated from it. What has that meant for our ability to cope in a tragedy like this one? 
what do you think um, is going to happen? Because, you know, I've, I've, I know several people who've lost loved ones in the last year. And just the simple fact of not being able to have a funeral, not being mm -hmm. able to have that celebration of life where everybody gets together because it was unsafe, um, that has such a detrimental mental impact. What do you think is going to come from this and what should we learn or prepare for? That's a really great question. And what I what I've been thinking about, um, so in the book that I wrote, uh, Death's Summer Coat is what it's called. It's partly about the rituals we have of grief, grief rituals that we surround ourselves with. And it reminds us that those rituals are, are, are man-made or are human-made, I should say. Um, and this, this process of getting through grief with rituals is something that can be changed. So one of the stories I tell in the book is about the, uh, the, the horrible, the Pol Pot, Khmer Rouge genocide that happens in Cambodia. It's a terrible destruction of life and there are mass graves. But in Cambodia, the way their uh, understanding of religion and spirituality works is it's really important to have the physical body of the deceased so that you can pray over it, so that you can help the soul on its journey and so that you can process that grief. But you don't know where those bodies are. That it's, there's so much of it and you can't get to those spaces. So they created a new way of practicing that. They created a ritual where you could use something that they had owned. So it could be their shirt. It could be a photograph. It could be, you know, a, a well-loved, you know, pen even. It's not something as simple as that. And that could be the, the stand-in for that person, that connection to that person. And they recreate, an entire community of people recreated a grief ritual around their circumstances. And so I take a lot of hope from that because there's actually no wrong way to grieve. You can't do it wrong except to not do it. So I, I've been trying to uh, say in the various places I've been interviewed that the, the real value is in recognizing you have the power to grieve in new ways. You don't have to do it in the old ways. And you know that might free us up. And I've seen some interesting things. Some people have chosen to do the online uh, funerals. Some people instead have created online um, memorials. And it's everything from art to song, to poetry, to short stories and memories and photographs. And they're doing that almost as a collage space online that is a communal way of sharing that person's life. So there's, there's a lot of, some people have put off the funerals deciding to do them at a later date. You can't do it wrong. Um, it is going to be hard. The, the other thing I think we have to recognize is we're grieving the loss of an illusion, an illusion of control that we thought we could all plan for Tuesday. Uh, and maybe that's a good thing that we're all experiencing that at one time, even though it's a difficult thing, because it means everyone's kind of starting from the same place. After all, if you lose somebody most of the time, everyone kind of expects you to get back to normal in two weeks. You know, we pathologize grief. Oh, you're still grieving after two weeks? Well, yes. I mean, Queen Victoria wore black her entire life after she lost her husband in the Victorian age. Why are we expecting people to get over it like that? So now everyone's in the same place. Maybe we can learn some healthier ways of grief and death and an approach to mortality that we didn't have at the beginning. From a historical standpoint, I'm sure you've done research and plenty of it on pandemics of the past. Sure. What do you think we can learn from this one? And what's your concern? Because, you know, I've never seen a pandemic become political before. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is just so completely 
different. And now there's such distrust because of mm-hmm. the vaccines and everything else. What can we learn and, and what perspective can you share? I So I'm not a most of my period is 18th and 19th century where you have lots of different kinds of things. You know, the Black Plague pops up a couple more times in history. Um, there's smallpox, there's other things. But I, I did, uh, not too long ago, was speaking to a friend of mine who's a historian of the Black Death. And what I found interesting, and I wrote about this in my book too, is that the that that particular pandemic in the 14th century, it rewrote the rules of authority. It completely broke the authority of the church, because once upon a time, you always went to the, the priest had to perform last rites. If you were, I'm talking about the Western world, obviously, I don't want to make that sound universal, but um, the priest would do last rites. Now there are no priests. So people had to take these death into their own hands, so to speak, and, and come to terms with things on their own. The authorities were completely unavailable to people and people were left to their own devices to try and interpret things how they may. And certainly there were political people who came in and tried to take advantage of that. So we have seen this in history, it's been a long time. But I think that one of the things that, the most important thing is for us not to be divided. Um, We actually have community power. And I think that's something I've learned from the pandemic. While all the strife that's happening where you have political opponents some people trying to claim that it's not happening or it's not real or whatever. That doesn't make any sense to me. But if you look at your at your your nearest community, the people you can reach and talk to, those are the people you can influence and affect and support and lift up. And so in most of the pandemics we've suffered, the the help has to come from local. You know, it has to be you reaching out to somebody else. Frequently, governments are kind of not that good at handling you know, these kinds of catastrophes. It's, it's partly because how do you prepare for something like this? It's not easy. But I do think that, you know, recognizing that we are all human beings and that all of our lives are important and that we ought to be reaching out and trying to support one another is the most valuable thing that can come from this. We should probably not look for answers out there on Twitter and you know Fox and CNN, maybe the answers come from us realizing we have to support each other. We have to care enough about the people around us that we don't want to endanger them. Were there people even back then who didn't believe any of this were, was happening or was it just so in your face, obviously, because communities were right. smaller? Um, Mm -hmm. they didn't have a chance. I mean, is there any, is there any parallel to what we're seeing now to what we had in history? Absolutely. Um, During the the flu pandemic of 1918, I only know this because there were posters, advertisements, public health announcements saying, you have to wear your mask. You have to wear a mask. You have to care about other people. Um, There were cartoons uh, of, of people refusing to wear masks and other people like chasing them down and punching them. There, there are, there's punching the maskless cartoons. <laughs> I'm not recommending that. Um, but I'm saying that, yeah, there absolutely were people who felt that this was an infringement and that they didn't want to have to wear masks and they didn't want to believe that it was really a bit, as big of a problem as it was. And that was with the flu pandemic. I think it's a little different with something like smallpox. Um, you can see smallpox. Smallpox is, is everywhere. It's a horrible disease. I don't, you, people think of it as chickenpox. It's not. It's literally like, it looks like you've been burned, like a burn victim. It's terrible. 
it affected babies and infants. And when you, you can physically see that, I think that is much more impacting. Honestly, the uh, smallpox wasn't as deadly. You, people usually survived it, but it disfigured you. And we are very visual people. And I think when you can see that someone has a disease, it's very different. It's, it's a lot harder to ignore when it's physically apparent on your body. Same is true of the bubonic plague, of course, and a lot of these other ones. If you can see that it's happening, it's kind of hard for you to go, maybe it's not real. But with flu, often people are asymptomatic or they're not symptomatic until it's too late and they're walking around and you can almost see how people go, well, if I can't see it, you know, it must not be real. This was an argument against germ theory. A lot of people were very resistant to believing in germs. They were like, no, I can't see it, can't be real even doctors. So it took a long time and microscopes to prove to people that that was real. So I, I think that we're hesitant because we don't want to believe that our lives are this fragile. We don't want to believe that we are at the mercy of tiny, minuscule creatures that we can't even see. Nobody wants to think that. We want to think that we're at the top of the food chain and we're going to be fine and it's a technological world. Surely this isn't going to happen to me. And it does and it is. And maybe that's a necessary corrective to our perspective. I know your nature is to look back at the past, but I'm, I'm curious to know how you think history will look at this particular pandemic. And I've asked a number of people, um, infectious disease experts, if they think this could potentially be just the dress rehearsal for something else, considering we've had three coronavirus outbreaks in the last mm -hmm. two decades. So what's your, what are your thoughts on that? You know, the, the, the trick, of course, is that our, our world is changing. We have a lot more people than we used to. I mean, I study the 19th century and the population has just, you know, climbed so dramatically since then. We have a global world, which means something that used to affect somebody on half the other side of the world would never affect you, now it can. We have a world that's changing in terms of climate. We have ice caps that are melting and permafrost that is releasing who knows what into the atmosphere that, you know, long dead viruses possibly, we don't even know. So yes, things are speeding up simply by virtue of the fact that we have the technological digital and physical connections that we do, things are speeding up because the world is changing. I don't think it's at all unlikely that there will be additional pandemics in the future. What I'm, what I'm hopeful for, but really worried about, is that I hope history looks back at this pandemic and says, this was the turning point. This was the moment where people realized they had to care about other people more than themselves. They had to care about the safety of everyone, not just themselves. They had to put other people ahead of the individual. That's what I hope happens. I hope we look back at this and go, this was the moment that we made that turn that allows us to deal with pandemics in the future better. But that depends on what we do right now. Brandy Scalace, thank you so much. You are just a wealth of fabulous information. And I know I'm going to be talking to you again in the future. But I want to tell everyone there is no way in health they want to just Google any of this information. So if people want to find your book, where where do they go and uh, and how do they find out more about you and the other things that you've done? Well, I, so I have a website, uh, brandyskilache.com. So the difficult part there is just spelling my name right. 
Um, <laughs> the book is available at all your various purveyors. You can get it online, but I have been sending people in Cleveland to either Max Bax, which has some signed copies or Loganberry books or other favorite local stores. I think we should buy local whenever we can. Um, and it's really easy to find me on Twitter because I almost live there. Uh, and it's the at sign B Scalache. And that's S-C-H-I-L-L-A-C-E. I hope you guys pick it up. It is on sale on Amazon today, actually. So awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, follow me at Monica Robbins on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, look for my Facebook page, Monica Robbins WKYC. And also please subscribe to my YouTube channel because the video of this podcast will be posted there as well. And also you need to check out WKYC.com and their social media and YouTube channel as well to stay up to date with all things coronavirus, as well as anything else that's going on in the health and medical world. And every story that I do every day, of course, is posted there as well. Stay well, everyone, and have a healthy week. Thanks for listening to Health Yeah! with Monica Robbins from WKYC Studios. Subscribe now so you never miss an update. And find more on everything you heard here on WKYC.com and on the WKYC app.